0: Would you stand with me, please? Oh, come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Oh, come ye, oh, come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him. Born the King of Angels, oh come, let us adore him. Oh come, let us adore him. Oh come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Indeed, Father, we come today to adore you, to adore your son. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to gather here as your people around your word. We ask for your grace in the proclamation of your word and in the hearing that in all things Christ might be supreme. And We pray all in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you do not have... uh, the handout. There's a fine scarfed gentleman over here uh, bringing them around. And if, you, uh, if this is your first week of the, these three weeks and you don't have one of these uh, lovely three column charts with a timeline, there are some of those back on the table as well. If you had uh, hoped to be in an Ezra Sunday school class, you're in the right place. Congratulations. This is week number three of three. And uh, today we're going to get through the last four chapters of Ezra. But before we do that, a quick catch-up on just the themes that we have seen and we'll continue to see, and then just where we've been in the, the timeline thus far. So I'm looking at uh, the document that says week 3, Ezra 7-10 through 10, up there in the top right, if you want to follow along. Reminding ourselves of the themes of Ezra, that God providentially moves in the hearts of whomever he wills to bring about his purposes. We've seen that, we'll see that again today. Two, the Lord is faithful to his promises. Three, joyful worship is serious business. For God's people are in the world, but are to be distinct from the world. And that will be exceedingly clear as we go through today's part of Ezra. And finally, opposition to the Lord's work will always exist and will always ultimately fail. And so, just catching up then on the timeline of where we've been thus far, in, in Ezra chapter 1, it begins with the proclamation from Cyrus of Persia, that all who would wish to, uh, who were in the Babylonian exile, could return to Jerusalem, um, bringing the exile to an end. Ezra chapter 2 describes some of that, so there were 50,000 or so folks who were on foot for 900 miles, came back to their towns, Ezra 3 describes sort of the reestablishment of pre-exilic life the altar is is set back up Uh, the burnt offerings begin Uh, again the the foundation of the temple is laid Ezra 4 then as they start to uh, build the temple in earnest they they immediately face opposition from the people of the land Uh, and in the face of that opposition the building stops Enter then Haggai and Zechariah in in Ezra chapter 5, who strengthen the people. And in uh, Ezra's chapters 5 and 6, building begins again, but this time strengthened by the the prophets of God. uh, The people of Israel stood stood strong, uh, did complete the temple. It was dedicated, which brings us to Ezra 7. So if you would turn with me to Ezra chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Actually, I'm just going to read the first three verse, three words of chapter of verse 1, now after this. Sounds like it could have been the same afternoon as the end of Ezra chapter 6, but it's actually 57 years later, which is technically still now after this. So so this is 57 years after the end of chapter 6. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Saraiah, the son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Meriah, son of Zerahiah, son of Azzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the chief priest, this Ezra went up for Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. So, in case there are any doubts about which Ezra is being talked about it is that Ezra um, whose lineage is chased all the way back to Aaron um, the first priest the, the brother of Moses of course and uh, so uh, Ezra is presented to us as a priest he is also presented to us as a scribe skilled in the law of Moses Um. And we see that credit is given uh, right away to God for what is about to happen. That uh, the king, Artaxerxes, granted this Ezra everything that was asked of the king. Not because Ezra was a great guy or the, the king was a great guy, although both of those could certainly be true. But it was bef- because of the hand of the Lord, Ezra's God, was upon him. And we'll see that. We won't read every verse of uh, these four chapters today. But you can see this hand of the Lord, the good hand of God, over and over and over again in these chapters. In, in uh, chapter 7, verse 6, chapter 7, verse 9, chapter 7, verse 28. And then in chapter 8, in verses 18 and 22, that same theme. Uh, So again, this continues what we've seen before, uh, that God is moving in the hearts of people. His hand is in the midst of history, moving. All right. Ezra chapter 7, verses 7 through 10 uh, really serves as uh, spark notes or cliffs notes for what, we'll read, uh, what we would read through all of the rest of chapters 7 and 8 um, in that um, we, we see a gathering of a variety of people who are either of the priestly order or laymen in, in Israel about 5,000 of them all gather Uh, they go on a four-month journey and the good hand of God is upon them Um, and then the rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8 sort of deal with more details of that so we'll get to those in just a bit but chapter 7 verse 10 is uh, a verse that we read the very first week before we read anything else in Ezra and it's key for us to understand uh, the rest of what we'll see in Ezra seven, eight, nine, and ten. So Ezra chapter seven verse ten. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. One of the uh, so so there are three things right that are that are told to us here about Ezra, uh, that, that he had set his heart to do these three things, to study the word of God, to do it, and then to teach others. Um, I don't, don't often quote commentaries, but this was a helpful uh, little paragraph from Kidner, that Ezra is a model reformer in that what he taught, he first lived. And what he lived, he had first made sure of in the scriptures. With study, conduct, and teaching put deliberately in this right order, each of these was able to function properly at its best. Study was saved from unreality, conduct from uncertainty, and teaching from insincerity and shallowness. So... Uh, that was a, a helpful reminder of these three things. Um, we'll see those in action soon as Ezra interacts with the people of Israel. But uh, before we go there, um, so the the question I have have had all week for myself, and now, as I mentioned before, it's one of the blessings of being a teacher, is that when you're convicted of something as you read the Scripture, then I get to share that and, and with you, is... Uh, how does that work in my own life? How does that work in your own life? Is, is our conduct based in what we read in the scripture? Is what we teach based in our conduct? Is, is there some sense of uh, dissonance across those? Would, would people be surprised to know that you were a Christian? If, if all they had was what you taught. Or if all they had was what you did. These are, these are good questions that we should answer. And Ezra sets a great uh, example for us. In that he had set his heart not only to study the word of God. Which is, a, which is a wonderful and fine thing, but to do it and then to teach others. Right? So I leave you with, with that, that question uh, that's, that's worthy of, of uh, your time and your prayer. All right. The rest of chapter 7 gives us a letter um, that uh, is a record of, of Artaxerxes' commissioning of Ezra. Ezra really was sent uh, to, to Jerusalem, um, not that he went unwillingly, but, but the letter makes it clear that he is sent um, by Artaxerxes. And uh, let me read verse 11, and then we will see bits and pieces of this letter as we go through Ezra 7.11, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. All right. At this point, 7.12, the, uh, Ezra itself goes back to Aramaic, as we had seen before. Again, for, for language nerds who are uh, excited about that. That's a, that's a bit uh, you can cling to there. Um, we'll just dance through some of, of this because I want you to see some of the keys. Verse 14, Ezra is sent by the king. And we see one of the first purposes to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God. Okay, okay. So hang on to that, that will, as we get to Ezra 9 and 10, we we don't want to lose sight of the purpose why Ezra came, who who Ezra is and why he came. Verse 15, uh, another purpose is given, Ezra is sent to carry silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel. So this is, an, this is an interesting little mini-reversal, uh, right? The, the way it was supposed to work is that the, the king, the suzerain, received uh, tribute from the vassal state, right? Toll, custom, and, and now the flow financially is the other way around, that, that the king... Persia is, is sending uh, wealth, and, and no small amount of wealth, we'll see, um, back to Jerusalem. Verses 16 to 20 give us instructions um, for those gifts, their use. And verses 21 to 24 give us some of the measures uh, of what additionally... Ezra could ask of the treasurers in the uh, province where Jerusalem was so uh, in verse 22 we see those that, that he can ask up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of weed, hundred baths of wine and oil and just as much salt as he wants <laughs> um so to, to put those into real numbers for us today, that's about $2 million worth of silver, uh, about two-thirds of a semi-truck of wheat, and uh, I didn't come up with a real good practical, what 600 gallons of something looks like, but it's a lot. It's a lot of wine. It's a lot of oil. Um, and in verse 23, the second part of this, I'll just read verse 23, whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. And now we see, we finally see the, the motive of Artaxerxes. This is, this is at least from, from Artaxerxes' viewpoint, his perspective, why uh, Ezra is being sent back and why the gifts are going, uh, is to, fa- to curry the favor of the God of Jerusalem. Verse 25, uh, a, a third uh, purpose in addition to uh, assessing the situation uh, of the people in Israel according to God's law, to bring these gifts, verse 25 now. Uh, Ezra is to appoint magistrates and judges who can judge all the people in the province. And, in verse 25 as well, at the very end of it, to teach God's law to those who do not know it. Verse 26, then, is worth reading. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of your king... Let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Okay. So the main point here is that Ezra is being sent on an official mission by Artaxerxes, but it is one that is closely tied to the Mosaic law to assess the situation of the people in Judah and Jerusalem, and he is reminded that he has the authority to carry out whatever judgments and punishments are appropriate as well. Ezra's response is in verses 27 and 28. Let me read that. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. To beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So again, Ezra immediately attributes all of the good here. To God, that uh, Artaxerxes and his favor are just a result of what God had done and put in the heart of the king. So God, so Ezra praises God, thanks God. It literally is encouraged. He took courage, and then he um, acted. He moved, and. Uh, it was a. Uh, I think it is a useful application as well for us to recall and remember, as we see uh, things happen in the world around us. Uh, all things may not be exactly as they seem with our human eyes. What what was happening on the surface uh, through Artaxerxes certainly was true, but it was not the root cause. Was not the root mover. In, the, in that day, nor is it in our lives. God is the one who is working in and through the means and, and the activities around us. All right. Chapter 8, we are uh, going to just take very quickly. Um, here are your highlights. I will leave that to your reading another time. Because we're kind of back to chapter 2 with lots of names. The sons of and the sons of. But uh, Ezra gathers up around 1,500 men. Those are in verses 1 through 14. uh, Of both the laymen and the priests. Uh, In case you have read as far as verse 2. Of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel. Nope. It's not that Daniel. Yeah, He would... He would be 160 or 170 years old by now. Um, verses 15 to 20, upon inspection of, of the group, there are no Levites. We might not care about that, Ezra did. He uh, wanted to make sure that there were ministers for the house of God. So he sent men to go look around and to call for Levites to join the group, which they did, it added another 250 or so to the group, so by the time uh, women and children were um, counted, uh, we can expect that this is a group of around 5,000 people. Um, In verses 21 to 23, Ezra then proclaims a fast, they are by the river Ahava, and They are about to set out, but not before Ezra proclaims a fast. And the purpose is really twofold. One, in in the text, shows us, verse 21, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our good. We don't have time to talk about fasting, in any depth whatsoever. But this is this is fair game to pick up and and think about purposes for fasting uh, to humble yourself before God and to entreat His favor for a specific thing. A fair fair example. Verses twenty four to thirty. Um, now the duty of um, who's going to carry what is assigned, um, which won't bore you with all the details, but the total comes to around $150 million worth in today's value of gold and silver and, and vessels for the temple. Um, Ezra 831, they departed from the river Ahava, On the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem, the hand of our God was on us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. So 5,000 people of all ages, 900 miles carrying $150 million worth of goods, unguarded, uh, were delivered by the good hand of God. They arrived, verses 33 and 34, the gold, the silver, the vessels were weighed out to the temple priests, offerings were made, and some of the other messages that Artaxerxes had sent along were delivered to the local leaders, which brings us to chapter 9. So let me read. Verses 1 and 2 from Ezra 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. So, we have, uh, we have read earlier in Ezra about external opposition to God's plans we are now encountering a serious internal problem the people of Israel. And uh, that is the subject of the rest of this book of Ezra 9 and 10. We see that uh, there are lay people, priests, Levites, all involved. So it is not uh, restricted to just one class of people. There are abominations that are, uh, that word is used in verse 1. They've not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. Verse 2 refers to this as faithlessness. And, sadly, the leaders, the officials and chief men have been foremost in this. So how will Ezra respond when he is faced with this information? Verses three and four. (coughs) As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. So, Ezra's response is one of mourning, of grief. This would not be uncommon uh, behavior or demonstration in the uh, news of the death of a loved one. To rend your garments, to pull hair from your beard and head yeah that that doesn't sound fun at all but but to sit appalled um, stunned really and again what is mentioned here at the core is faithlessness you're going to hear me just hammer away on that for about 30 more minutes faithlessness okay um and you'll see why, because we need to pause right here and understand uh, better from God's law why this was a bad thing. What, what, what happened here that, that is so horrible, and why does that lead to the actions that we will see in the rest of Ezra? So we have an excursus here that will take us back. You see them listed I didn't list one of them. I didn't mean to leave it out. It just jumped out there. Exodus 34 is where we begin. And so if you turn with me. <coughs> so this is after the second set of, of uh, law tablets had been inscribed by God. Renewal of the covenant, Mount Sinai. Um, Exodus 34, verses 11 through 16, this is God speaking to Moses. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. Okay? So here, there is prohibition on covenants um, because of the ramifications of connectedness with these other people. Right? The covenant itself may or may not have been the key, but by not making a covenant, it builds a fence so that there's you don't get to eating a sacrifice <clears throat> that sacrifice to idols. You don't get to uh, being led away to other gods. Numbers chapter twenty five. This is the one that is not listed, I think, in your notes. Is that right? Thank you. All right. Yep. Numbers twenty five. While Israel lived in Shittim the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab these invited the peoples to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and the Lord said to Moses take all the chiefs of the people And hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Cling to that last phrase, that the fierce fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Verses 6 through 9, I won't read it, but it is the description of, one of the Israelites who brings a Midianite woman into his tent and then Phinehas, grandson of Aaron uh, executes them both and um, the the end of verse 8 thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped nevertheless those who died by the plague were 24,000 so because of what you see is because of these acts the people of Israel and their unfaithfulness their faithlessness to their covenant with God 24,000 died not by accident Deuteronomy 7 (coughs) Deuteronomy 7 which because this is the way numbers work is right after Deuteronomy 6 right that chapter we love right the Lord our god is one hero israel right and and this is that same thing just the next chapter deuteronomy 7 verse 1 when the lord your god brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For purpose here for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods then the anger of the lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly but thus shall you deal with them you shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire okay so a a repetition of what we have seen, but you're seeing the theme here, right? That, That this is serious business, and it may or may not be exactly the covenant or the marriage that's at issue here, but it's the covenant faithlessness that would come because of the idolatrous worship, okay? Just hang on to that as we go to Joshua chapter 23 Israel has settled the land the the Israelites have settled the land of Canaan Um, Joshua is about to go the way of all men Uh, and this is his farewell presentation to the people of, of Israel Joshua chapter 23 verses 11 13. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God, for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain. That the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Okay? So, <clears throat> again, Israel has settled the land. They have not completely driven out the other peoples as God had commanded them and now joshua is explaining to them how it will be uh, if they uh, intermarry if they whore after the gods of these peoples that that these peoples will be around them forever And, and, and in fact eventually they the israelites themselves will perish from this good land that was given to them okay First Kings eleven. We're working our way back to Ezra. We're real close. First Kings eleven, <clears throat> verses one through four, is about Solomon. Solomon has already. Um, completed two of the three legs of the trifecta of disobeying God in how a king should behave by gathering tremendous wealth and tremendous horses and a military around him. Uh, you need to go back to Deuteronomy 17. We won't do that, but if you want to, you want to see what, do, what does God expect of a king, that's Deuteronomy 17, okay, homework for you. Now is the description of the third leg of this verses 1 through 4. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Again, purpose there, for surely They will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So we see an example of this um, playing itself out in the life of the wisest man in the history of history. Faithlessness. Covenant faithlessness. The rest of the chapter we won't read but God proclaims that for this very reason the kingdom will be torn away from you. In fact but not you your son and it will be in half and the divided kingdom is described precipitating out of Solomon's covenant faithlessness. Okay. So, the take home here from these texts that we've gone to is I think that it is too simplistic to look at what what we're seeing here in Ezra as an ethnic purity or racial thing. This is about religious purity. It's about uh, having a fence that guards you from covenant faithlessness. Um, If you know what happens in the rest of Ezra, these, these wives are going to be put away there will be divorces but I'm I'm gonna make the claim here that I really don't think that the issue primarily is about marriage and divorce here as much as it is about covenant faithfulness it just happens to be that the the, the part of the covenant being violated here relates to marriage Okay. so back to Ezra we go with that background. Back to Ezra nine. Because we need to read Ezra's prayer. Right, we where we left him, he was sitting appalled, missing some of his hair, needed to get his clothes repaired or replaced. Right? He's in he's in great anguish and grief and mourning. So, verse five through the rest of the chapter, this is Ezra's prayer. And, and by the way, this becomes first person now. This is now. This is now. Unlike everything we've had before, this is this is Ezra now speaking directly to us. At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting, with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees. And spread out my hands to the Lord, my God, saying, "O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we... Our kings and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For We are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with the abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again again? and intermarry with these the peoples who practice these abominations would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape o lord the god of israel you are just for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today behold we are before you in our guilt For none can stand before you because of this. It is hard to um, properly uh, emphasize the depth of of Ezra's confession and his shame and humility here uh, on behalf of the people of Israel. he was not involved in these intermarriages, yet he is praying, he is pleading on behalf of the people of Israel as though uh, he were one of the those who had sinned in this way. This is an identity of community that uh, we might be a little bit unfamiliar with. Um, as As you see a brother or sister caught in sin? How, How does that impact you? Do you plead the way that we see Ezra pleading for God to be merciful? Do we recognize how great our sin is before a holy and just God like Ezra has proclaimed here? I want to uh, remind us again here, in this prayer, two big things. Verse 11 and 12, Ezra is going back to the commands that were given as the company of Israel went into the land of Canaan, All right? So that, that is the original command that's being referred to and he sees that this is this is playing out a second time in essence where where they're now coming back from babylon to inhabit the land again and recognize in verse then the second thing is in verse 14 that after god's great mercy even in the face of their disobedience how could how could god be merciful again. They, they understand that God is merciful. But, but Ezra is saying, after all this, and we're going to sin against you this way again, how, how can we stand? How, how can you, God, abide with this? All of this points to a, a unique and extreme situation where drastic actions are being called for, to restore covenant faithfulness. All right. So to chapter 10. While Ezra was praying, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men and women and children gathered To him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehael, the son of Elam, addressed Ezra We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord. And of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. So we see that the plan that is put forth of, of for this drastic action because of this extreme situation of faithlessness. There is Confession. There's an acknowledgement that there is hope still in God's mercy, but that something must be done. We'll chase that out in just a second. But the rest of um, Ezra is the development and execution of that plan where leaders were named to Work this plan out of examining or questioning each marriage to a foreign woman to have appointments set up to get this accomplished. Uh, they did this in a matter of about three months. And at the end of chapter 10, there is a list of 113 men uh, of priests, of Levites, of lay people, laymen who. Were, had been found to be married to uh, foreign wives. The book itself ends in an uh, awkward place. If you go to the very last verse of Ezra, after this list of 113 men, it says, "All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even borne children." The end. <laughs> Um, we don't, we don't know, we, we can, we can speculate that, that as in, uh, any divorce situation that, that a certificate of divorce was given, that, 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 um, provision was made for these women and their children, but we, we, we simply don't know that for sure. They may have been sent back to their, their homeland, their tribe, their father's home, um just ends. I will, I will tell you that it would be great to say that this was a happy ending that this was no problem for Israel ever again uh, however just, just half a generation later in Nehemiah 13 and in Malachi 2 the very same thing occurs here. Um, in fact Malachi 2 describes uh, Israelite men who had Divorced their Jewish wives to go and marry a foreign wife. Um, all right. We have too little time for too important of a topic, but we're gonna do what we can. This is on the putting away. How do we understand this? Right? How, how do we understand this? We, we we know we have heard from Pastor Dan rightly and over and over again about uh, how God sees marriage and divorce, right? So, and this seems cold and this seems, really? We just, we just had an interview and and then they were just put away? Those, those are the facts. And what helps me to understand this is that This is about covenant faithfulness. The people had broken covenant with their God. And this was affecting the entire people group. Even even though there may have been 50,000 of this remnant in Israel now who had returned from Babylon. And there are only 113 named. There is impurity not, not in a racial or ethnic sense, okay? But in a spiritual sense, there is impurity in the camp. Right? There is impurity among the people. And, and again, the, the marriage itself may or may not really be the specific thing, although it is the command. But every time the, the marriage is listed, it's always because of the, the cause of what would happen, right? Uh, that th- that this woman would become a snare or a trap a thorn or a whip to you and anyone who is married knows how intimate the marriage relationship is and how much influence Deborah has on Russ and Russ has on Deborah. That's the way it works. It's an acknowledgement that that relationship is so intimate and so close that there will be no doubt be some pull spiritually. Okay. We also read back in Exodus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, that the punishment for such things was death. So can I say that divorce... Here is a mercy compared to the punishment that was prescribed for the uh, foreign marriage I don't know um, but is it a universal thing that uh, well okay Christian you're married to an unbeliever no matter how you got to that place Right, no matter how you got to that place, is, is, is this your text to say, okay, I, I, can, I, can, I can divorce this spouse because uh, of the potential influence? Uh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 14, we need to read that before we close. So if you'd turn with me to that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and by the way god's god's uh view on his followers marrying people who are not his followers that's no different today that's second corinthians 6 12 14 right do not be unequally yoked right what 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 does god have to do with belial right so so there's no difference today in god's principles in, in God's commands as it relates to his people and how they marry. But 1 uh, first, first Corinthians chapter 7 verse 12 To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So, that, so the commandment is clear for us today, regardless of how we understand Ezra 9 or 10. The commandment for us is clear. And this is yet another one of the great reversals that God has brought about, right? The prohibition in Deuteronomy and in Exodus was to um, set aside or, or guard against covenant faithlessness. The influence of the foreign woman on the Jehovah following man. And the reason here, at least one of the the advantages of staying together, a believing man or woman with his or her unbelieving spouse is because of the influence, the gospel influence in the lives of that spouse and the children. So it's it's again one of these reversals that we have seen throughout scripture. Again, not enough time on, uh, on too important of a topic, um, but uh, let's very quickly sum up what we've seen in Ezra. I hope that this has been useful for you. It's been very useful for me. Um, in two statements, in Ezra chapters 1 through 6, we have seen God move in the hearts of kings and of his people and through his prophets. To restore his people to their land and in their place of worship. And in these chapters we looked at today, we see that God has moved in the hearts of the king and of his people, and through teachers of his law, to restore his people, at least temporarily, to covenant faithfulness. Much more to dig out of Ezra, and I hope that you'll take it up uh, on your own. Uh, Let's pray. God, we thank you for the book of Ezra. We thank you for each and every verse of your word. And we pray, God, that you would continue to teach us for our joy and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.